Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. This week, marks and angles. You turn if you don't want to. The government's dire handling of A-level results sparks a student-led outcry and causes an embarrassing reversal from the Conservatives. Can Education Secretary Gabby Williamson really escape being placed on special measures? And is this the death knell of our old favourite, young people have it too easy these days? Plus, is the clock ticking for Rishi? The Chancellor has been captain good news throughout the COVID crisis, but with a difficult autumn on the horizon, is Sunak mania about to come to a screeching halt? And with food prices set to skyrocket at the end of the year as the Brexit transition period comes to a close, does Britain need an affordable food deal? All this and more in today's podcast. Welcome back to The Bunker. Before we dive into this week's big issues, a quick bit of admin. We were really disappointed when we had to postpone our joint show at the Leicester Square Theatre with Romaniacs to September the 22nd. And now you'll never guess what, we've had to postpone it again. We hope to announce a new date soon when the coronavirus environment might be a bit more manageable. But in the meantime, to tide you over, we're opening our next live Zoom to all ticket holders as well as Patreon backers. It's on Thursday the 24th of September at 8pm. Please check your inbox or Patreon page to find out how how to register. Obviously, we're really sorry not to be at the Leicester Square Theatre and we're asking ticket holders, if possible, please don't ask for a refund if you don't have to. Not for us. We don't get anything until after the show has happened, but for the theatre who are doing their best in very difficult times. Any help you can render will be really welcome. So put Thursday, 24th of September in your diary and we'll see you there. Now, let's meet today's panel. Hello to comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. How are you doing? Hello, uh, I'm very well. I'm I'm not actually in my house at the moment, and it's a very strange place to be. Wow, are you in a telephone box somewhere or up on a hill stealing <laughs> yeah. Wi-Fi? I've escaped London uh, briefly, uh, and I'm just sort of in the middle of the countryside, and I'd forgotten that there were birds and trees. Yes, they've probably forgotten about you as well. As a writer <laughs> for Nish Kumar's Hello America on Quibi, the the the, the strange iPhone-based uh, <laughs> TV thing, you keep an eye on American politics. What did you think of Joe Biden picking Kamala Harris for his running mate? Is this the ticket to beat Trump? Realistically, I think that this is this is very much the sort of inanimate carbon rod election, and so <laughs> I, I I absolutely could not care. I, I mean, I don't know a great deal about uh, Kamala Harris. I'm sure very nice. Uh, but I think very few <laughs> things would have made me think, nah, actually, this Trump guy, let's see what this Trump guy's got to say on the second girl. Uh, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, oh, it appears that um, it appears that Joe Biden's picked um, the actual devil uh, as his running mate. And it's like, well, I mean, in Paradise Lost, he did actually come across quite well. So let's uh, think, maybe it's not. Yeah, much bit. misunderstood. Yeah. Biden would have had to pick Cthulhu or somebody for you to think, hmm, Trump, maybe he's the guy. He's take a fresh look at him. I've never been able to get into H.P. Lovecraft and so, yeah, that probably would have been the red line for me. Yeah. 
Um, after you're seeing the Twitter voices saying that she's not radical or progressive enough, or even that she's like she's not really black because her parents are from India and Jamaica, there's been it, there's been an attack from the the kind of uh, you know the extreme right that because her family heritage does not literally go back to slavery, she's quote not really black. Uh, I mean, Andrew, you opened that question with "Have you seen the Twitter voices?" and then. <laughs> listed a series of absurd things for people to be furious about and the answer yep. is obviously yes i have seen them yes i wish i hadn't uh but that's the that's the case for all of us in that hell site ladies and gentlemen twitter also joining us is best for britain ceo naomi smith hello naomi how are you hi i'm good how are you uh, all right, not bad, thank you. Um, so just before we started recording, Matt Hancock announced that Public Health England is indeed going to be scrapped. Is this just straight up blame stuff? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're just trying to scapegoat everyone at the moment. And no doubt Gavin Williamson will also be scapegoated at some point, I would imagine, uh, this week. And uh, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure how they do this without an act of parliament, because as I understood the, the Health and Social Care Act, this isn't something that could be done. But whatever, they're going to do it. They've announced it. Um, and and it, it, it will doubtless happen because we've got a, a government with an 80 seat majority. Um, but, uh, you know, it's incumbent upon all of us to remember that the buck absolutely needs to stop with the top brass of this government on all things Corona, because, you know, we are in this horrendous situation economically uh medically all the rest of it because we didn't lock down early enough uh we didn't test 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 we didn't learn from other countries we didn't trace and we are still not doing any of those things uh, in the order of magnitude that we need to be completing the panel is alex andrea writer singer cook and master of the high seas what's your take on this public health england punishment beating then alex well it was it was fairly expected wasn't it i think i said uh, on this podcast a couple of months ago that there is a series of sort of uh, uh, protective barriers around uh, Johnson and the very first one was Public Health England and so it goes. What do we know about Dido Harding who is going to run the replacement having run the thing it's replacing? <laughs> well we know that she did a really shit job with a track and trace um, thing so um, and uh, that she's, I think, uh, Michael Gove's ex-girlfriend, so clearly very poor judgment on all fronts. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think on the, yeah, I mean, look, we've already had the um, president of the British Medical Association come out and say, you know, unacceptable that this is such a political appointment and it really needed to be much, much, much more neutral than somebody that isn't wearing their political colours. But yet again, this government cannot help itself but to install their person that they know they can control, who is totally on message with everything they're trying to deliver. Um, and what does that mean? Well, that means that, you know, the public are not going to get from this what they need. They're going to get political decisions being made rather than proper public health decisions. She'll probably be in charge of off call by the end of yeah. the week. <laughs> Before we move on, uh, the government announced uh, this week's new quarantine measures. This week it was France and the Netherlands. They do like their their, their late announcements. What do we think of the reasoning behind uh, you know sort of throwing out quarantine measures uh, on uh, you know on countries that are both in terms of in COVID terms actually safer places to be than Britain itself? Well, so it wasn't an early enough announcement to be useful to people who were thinking of going to France or the Netherlands, and it wasn't a late enough announcement to prevent 
thousands of people from packing into trains and planes and uh, ferries and service stations uh, and creating a real bottleneck of people crammed together from countries which you, the government, say um, are quite dangerous in terms of infection rates at the moment. Um, It reminded me a little bit of the announcement to close pubs on a Friday afternoon, but only after the Friday evening. Mm. It's almost as though all of these people are fucking shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and the Telegraph even went for them um, in the leader column on Saturday. As to the kind of the why of it, um, I guess they just don't want new entrants of COVID-19 to complicate the current level in the country. Um, And it's hard to know just how prevalent it is in places now or in the near future when you only have case data from those already um, symptomatic and tested. You know, regardless of all of that, 14-day quarantine is really, really stupid. And they should have just done testing at airports like many other countries have done and then maybe demanded another at-home or drop-in test three days later or something. But yeah, just all adding to this... um, I think Keir Starmer's narrative is now incompetence, incompetence, incompetence. The three eyes. <laughs> First up, no images of attractive young people jumping into the air this year, unless they may be celebrating the sacking of Gavin Williamson later this week. Watch this space. The A-level results were a fiasco, a shambles and an invitational blame tennis tournament as Ofqual's algorithm downgraded 40% of results, provoking perhaps the biggest rebellion in the history of British education, even bigger than the Grange Hill School uniform riots of 1983. After U-turns in Scotland and Wales, England followed suit, and at the time of recording, Education Secretary Williamson was doing the rounds of media, explaining how he hadn't let the pupils down, or let the school down, or let himself down. (laughs) The takeaway for many people has been simple. Privileged students will get preference, and working-class kids will get levelled down. Joining us to discuss this mess is friend of the show and former Liberal Democrat MEP Caroline Voden, whose daughter is going through the A-level process right now. Hello, Caroline. Hello. How are you? Uh, well, calming down after a few days of being in a total rage. I think I've been as angry this week, if not angrier, than I have been since June the 24th, 2016. And that says something. I'm absolutely furious at the uh, the incompetence and... Yeah, it's just been it's been a really stressful week, not only for me but for my daughter as well, which has been which has been hard to watch. I mean, if it's not prying too much, tell us what what is your what is your family situation there with you? What, what what's your situation with your daughter? Did, did she get downgraded? Yeah. Did she uh... downgraded? She luckily for us, um, she had already decided that she was going to do an art foundation course. So thank God we didn't have the nightmare of of trying to juggle um, a university application. Um, so she was downgraded um, in all three of her A-levels and um, she's now sort of been graded back up to teacher assessment, but we still don't think those grades are what she would have got if she'd done the exam. So we're looking at resets in October, or she's looking at Mm-hmm. Well, it's not resets, is it? She's looking at taking her A-levels in October. but She's looking at sets. You know, the, the, the stressful thing about that is that one of her subjects is Spanish. Now, she hasn't been in a Spanish classroom since February, um, and they hadn't finished the course. So we have to find a tutor, finish the course, uh, and get back to where she was in February and and get to where she would have been in June in the space of six weeks. I mean, it's, it's just it's appalling. It. You know, and, and, and the stories, obviously, I've got lots of friends who've got lots of kids at the same stage. And without wanting to make too sweeping a, a statement, I would say that pretty much all the ones whose kids go to really nice, um, good schools, independent schools, private schools, top grammars, 
uh, they've all done absolutely fine. And the ones whose kids Mm. have gone to the sixth form colleges, they've all been screwed over. You know, when this government talks about levelling up, it's always sounded a bit crass to me. I've never believed it for a second. They just can't even use those words anymore. It's, you know, they, they are entrenching the privilege that that the kids whose parents have got money have always had in this country. And nothing makes me more angry than that. You know, if if the algorithm should have skewed in any direction, it should have skewed the other way to give the kids who are in the underperforming schools but are outstanding children, to give them the leg up that they need to get anywhere in our twisted society where you can't get anywhere unless you've got the tie or the crest. Totally. And and where it's all about equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. So it should never have come to this. And the fact that you know, we haven't even seen Boris Johnson, I mean, bloody hell, is he in a fridge somewhere or something? Because he just, <laughs> you know, is it not time he, he actually faced the music? But no, he's just hiding because he's a coward and he doesn't want to actually have to answer any questions. And, I, you know, Gavin Williamson's been given a bit of a hard time. I saw an interview with him on Sky, but not not tough enough. And, and you know, he's still not saying he's going to resign. He should have been sacked instantly. I mean, it's just it's just incompetence at the highest level. And it makes me so angry. Naomi, what, what, I mean, it's hard to, to tell whether this is ineptitude, malice, bad politics, bad policy, simple uh, failure to detect what's important. Where do you think the blame lies on this? Is it an, is it an accurate... Quickly, it, can, it can and is all of those things. It can, of course. You're absolutely right. <laughs> it can be all of the above. So, Nomi, <laughs> what mixture of these particular tasty ingredients do you think it is? I, I, think, it, I think it is mostly cock-up, albeit one that you know happened to favour their voter base and the children of their voter base. Um, but I mean, I think what we're in danger of thinking is that, that these U-turns will damage them. Mm. And actually, you know, we've seen U-turn after U-turn after U-turn after U-turn. And actually Politico this morning had a brilliant article, uh, detailing them chronologically since March and school meals, Harway, all of that stuff, right? Harway, exactly. But what you've got to remember that the conservatives are much better than and actually the SNP are very good at this as well, so I'll say the SNP and uh, the Tories, is being pragmatic. And the Lib Dems and Labour and Greens and others are much, much less good at this. They entrench and double down on a policy even when it's unpopular. Mm. But the Tories don't, and they U-turn. And actually this can come across across as being remarkably uh, pragmatic. And as much as we might criticise the initial decision, um, when it isn't totally vital to their mission a.k.a. Brexit, uh, they do correct themselves. Um, and I think this is an example of their pragmatism and the SMPs and, and does make them savvy. You know, Michael Howard apologised for the poll tax. Cameron apologised for Section 28. Nick Clegg, on the other hand, only said sorry for having made the tuition fees pledge in the first place. You know, like a cheating spouse apologising for having got married in the first place. <laughs> um, so, you know, if Brexit goes badly, the hard Brexit that they're pursuing goes very, very badly, uh, they'll elect someone who isn't a total headbanger Brexiteer. Um, and of course, you know, progressives shouldn't be as mercenary as the Tories, but by God, we could do with being a little bit more pragmatic um, as they are. When you mentioned Nick Clegg, he's a personal favourite of yours as well. We know you've got his poster on your wall and everything. Um, do, you would... I actually do have a life-size cardboard. <laughs> total fangirl. Uh, you would have thought uh, that... No, for, for Halloween. <laughs> you would have thought the government would at least have learned 
the lesson of Nick Clegg, which is do not mess with students and hardworking middle class parents. They are your supposed voter base. Absolutely. Is this event going to resonate? Is it going to join Dominic Cummings in the one rule for us, one rule for everybody else pile? Um, it won't it won't be anywhere near as bad for the Tories as tuition fees was for the Lib Dems, uh, I'm afraid to say, because um, it was you know, for, for the Lib Dems. It wasn't just that there was this pledge. Uh, it was a signature issue in a row of elections, you know, 2001, 2005, 2010. Um, and, and the Lib Dems invited people to judge them on it. And uh, Nick Clegg did this party political broadcast in 2010 talking about no more broken promises. Um, and so there was a very unique way that the Lib Dems trashed their own reputation by breaking that pledge. And that really does have to be understood. The pledge was just to not increase fees, but the actual policy was to scrap them. So they had, they had you know, this sort of <laughs> double issue of not only did they not implement their policy of scrapping them, they didn't even stick to their pledge of not increasing them. They wholeheartedly voted to triple them, having said that, you know, we're going to restore <laughs> broken trust in politics. Um, and the Tories didn't go into the 2019 general election on a promise to give everyone fair grades uh, in their GCSEs and A-levels. So I'm afraid this is almost certainly not going to hurt them anywhere near as much as tuition fees hurt the Lib Dems but I think it probably will be part of this drumbeat of uh, incompetence we'll probably have some Westminster voting intention polls out uh, by the time this podcast goes live tomorrow and I'd be surprised if we didn't see some dip uh, in support for the Conservatives as a consequence of it whether that sustains or not who knows Alex, I mean, as of now, Gavin Williamson is still in as Education Secretary. Amazingly. <laughs> I know. Can you remember a time when ministers used to resign? Well, just about. Just about. Hmm. I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> the, the, the last one, uh, but I was taught about it in law school because individual ministerial responsibility was quite a big thing in constitutional law. So I think the last one was Lord Carrington in 1982, yeah. with a possible exception of Estelle Morris in 2002, ironically over a fuck-up with uh, uh, A-level grades, a much, much less bad fuck-up, I should add. But it is the first time I seem to remember where he hasn't felt it's even worth explaining why he hasn't resigned. But isn't that the meta message? You know, we've got the majority. What are you going to do? Yeah, but I find the most astonishing thing out of this whole affair is uh, how poor political judgment they've shown. Because mm. it was instantly obvious to me, days and days ago, the moment basically Nicholas Sturgeon came out and said, this algorithm has done some really strange shit, so we're going to uh, move away from it. And Williamson said, we're going to make no such U-turn. It became instantly obvious <laughs> that that position was untenable. Yes. Um, and so to grind it out and inflict maximum damage on the government, it just it reinforces that sense that they're rubbish at governing. You've been paying close attention to Penny Mordaunt, Penny Mordaunt as well, haven't you? Because she's been very nonplussed by this. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's actually quite hard to incite a backbencher rebellion during recess. <laughs> you know, it's, it's actually quite an achievement. So for, for that many backbenchers to come out and openly condemn the government, 
I mean, it does something. I think it leaves a mark. It takes the shine of this new government mm. with its MPs. And if you look at voting records, the interesting thing is that rebellion is a habit-forming um, action. And so this is actually a, a tricky thing for the government. But also, let's not forget all those seats that they won in the north of England, you know, the red wall yeah. that suddenly went blue. You know, those were the seats that they said they were going to focus on, where they were going to level up and they were going to make the difference and they were going to show all those people that they'd done the right thing by voting Tory. I can't imagine any of those new Tory MPs being happy with what's happened over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, they might not mm. be very vocal. I don't know. I haven't been following any of them on social media, but they're all new in the job, aren't they? So they might be keeping a bit quiet, but, you know, there's going to be an awful lot of unrest amongst them. Yeah, particularly if your first interactions with your new constituents are, well, what the hell is this all about? My yeah. daughter was supposed to be going here and now she's not. That's going to be a bit of a yeah. teachable moment if you're a new MP, I would mm. imagine. Yeah, definitely. Oh, here, um, you know, the, we, we, we saw an awful lot of uh, the right-wing commentary jumping in with uh, the usual, the horrors of grade inflation. We can't possibly have grade inflation, usually from people in their 70s who don't really have anything to do with kids or education anymore. Is it going to be possible to sustain that easy kind of analysis that, well, young, you know, exams are easy these days and young people have it really easy? Well, I mean, in large part, that analysis was always bullshit to begin with. But I think that the important yeah. thing that we mustn't lose sight of is fuck these people. Fuck <laughs> them. Fuck them wholly <laughs> and entirely. Right. Go pack to the rafters. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fucking big, dumb, racist house full of fuckwits <laughs> and ghouls. And I cannot stand any of them. Sorry if I'm um, sort of channeling Ian Dunt uh, here in the way that I'm speaking. Uh, but if anyone's missing him, then that's what, that'll be good for them. But particularly after, after all that we've collectively been made to live through for the last few months, it's just the absolute rotten cherry on a shit cake of like... <laughs> We're just going to let all of the kids uh, think that we've totally fucked over uh, their futures now uh, for a little bit. And then they will sort of go back on it, but in a way that is probably too late for quite a lot of them anyway. Uh, and, and it's just so callous and pointless and heartless and symptomatic and emblematic of everything that uh, this government and these people are, really. And it's just, I, I don't know how you could interpret this as anything other than shafting over a generation of young people with something pointless and classist and racist and awful. Caroline, I was about to ask you before we close this section, how you think it, what, uh, you know, what sort of a lasting impression you think this is going to leave with the government. I hear covered it all there. Have you got some to add on that? What a lasting impression amongst the young people. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're pretty angry. I mean, I, I keep hearing, them saying, you know, well, none of us are ever going to vote Tory. You know, I, I'm not sure many of them would have done anyway, to be honest. I think I think what's more crucial is how their parents feel about it. Um, you know, I think I think this 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 year, certainly, and po possibly their siblings have have now been lost as Tory voters, at least for the foreseeable future. And I think many of their parents will have been affected by it. Certainly I have been. It's very, very difficult to, to sort of go through something like this with your child when there's absolutely nothing you can do to make it any better. And they're just raging mm. against the injustice of it. What do you say? Yeah, it is unjust. Mm. It is unfair. And I can't do anything to, to make it better. You can't do anything to make it better. We're completely impotent. And it's just that, you know, the government have decided that this computer program is OK and can go ahead. Um, you know, they had five months to prepare for this. It's not like it 
this has all happened in the last two weeks. That that algorithm should have been tested within an inch of its life to make sure that it came out with fair results. Um, I think Caroline's right on the um, the demographic point of this. I mean, intergenerational inequality has been such an issue for for such a long time now. It's why we had very posh kids chanting "Oh, Jeremy Corbyn" at Glastonbury a few years ago. Um, and you know, it's it's rooted in so much more than just this. Of course, you know, it's awful things like their loss of free movement, um, you know, a horrific housing crisis, and now you may have missed out on education that you wanted to go into post school, but you're also going to be missing out on jobs because all of those entry level hospitality and retail jobs are going to the wall. So there's a huge amount for certainly the younger generation and hopefully their parents to be really quite cross about. Okay. Thanks for joining us, Caroline. Thanks, Caroline. Okay, thanks for having me. One of the few politicians to have come out of this crisis with their reputation somewhat enhanced is Chancellor Rishi Sunak. I mean, the guy stood you dinner this week. A man who was only elevated to be top dog in the Treasury, subs please check, after Sajid Javid's resignation in February. Sunak's free spending during the COVID crisis has made him the most popular Chancellor since Gordon Brown in 2005. According to YouGov, his approval rating sits at 33% positive, way ahead of his Conservative colleagues. And even in Scotland, he's viewed positively on 7% compared to Boris Johnson's minor minus 51% north of the border. But with the furlough scheme winding down and an uncomfortable winter approaching with the end of the Brexit transition period, I think it's going to get tricky for Rishi. Alex Andreo, uh, Sunak's enjoyed a meteoric rise on some measures. He's the UK's most popular politician. He is supposedly the heir apparent to Boris Johnson. Is this going to last as things get worse? No. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, do you want more than that? Care to expand? <laughs> <laughs> He's done, look, he's done the really easy bit, which is chuck cash at everyone. Uh, and now he's got to do the really difficult bit, which is begin to take it away. And then he's got to do the really, really difficult bit, which is begin to recoup it. Um, so, I mean, it, it is as night follows day that Rishi Sunak will not remain popular Unless, uh, and if he's a very, very smart politician, he may do this. And if he's got ambitions for the top job, he may do this. Unless he finds a reason of principle that will be positively viewed by the public to resign (laughs) before the end of this year, then he can keep his popularity intact and be always this figure in the background that's threatening Johnson's leadership. That would be my advice to him. Mm, resign. And then just like his predecessor, uh, uh, Sajid Javid, today, who is staying on as an MP, but has also landed a top job with an investment bank paying almost certainly an eye-watering amount of cash. Yeah, because everyone knows being an MP is a part-time thing. Mm. When Sunak came into the job, uh, he was kind of uh, seen as uh, effectively the Prime Minister's puppet. He was installed when uh, Javid was given an ultimatum that he should have his team entirely hand-picked by uh, Dominic Cummings and he wasn't up for it. From what you've seen over the past few months, has he been more independent than we had expected? What's the relationship like between number 10 and number 11? I haven't seen any signs of uh, of that. I haven't heard any of any discord. Uh, as far as I can see, um, he's he's a very good technocrat, 
that basically makes what uh, Number 10 wants to happen, happen. Um, but who is the real Rishi Sunak? I think that, that is actually the right question to ask because uh, Javid was replaced in part because he was too fiscally conservative and, and tried to, you know, plough his own furrow, so got replaced. And I don't think we know how independent of Johnson and Cummings Sunak actually is. But what does it mean that he was the, the, you know, Captain Good News, the deliverer of the giveaways? Because you would imagine that an image obsessed prime minister uh, on a permanent campaign like Johnson would want himself to be the deliverer of this good news. And in fact, Johnson's delivering the, the, the trite three word slogans, but he's not saying literally free lunch for everyone. I yesterday uh, was having dinner outside a restaurant and a group came out of the restaurant saying Rishi Sunak for prime minister. It was fucking weird. (laughs) Uh, Like, yeah, it is really bizarre how well he's been able to like manage this thing so that everything positive is associated with him. Yeah. 10 quid off a trough of gyoza will do that for you. (laughs) But Boris Johnson is shit at detail. So how much detail do you need for 10 quid off lunch? (laughs) Well, yeah, and then the follow-up would be a journalist asking, how much will this cost, Mr. Johnson? And he would go... (laughs) That's a very good impression. No, but that's that's the point. He can't do the financial announcements because he doesn't have the attention span to keep figures more than one or two in his head for more than five minutes. Well, fundamentally, this is a man who became prime minister so that he could cut ribbons and bang. He wasn't interested in doing any of the other stuff that's associated with it. So it's not that surprising that he doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Naomi, we've just entered probably the biggest recession the UK will have seen in several hundred years. GDP dropped 20% in the second quarter. Um, You know, clearly he, as Alex has just explained, uh, he's going to, you know, his fingerprints going to be all over this. One of our Twitter followers is calling it the Rishi session. I don't know if that's going to going to catch on. Do you think that um, that that Sunak has the necessary political hardness or cold eyedness to deal with the tough times? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. It's Rishi's tricky second album. Um, uh, look, as as they will you know, doubtless do with uh, Williamson and Public Health England and others, if if this all goes wrong, they will of course try to scapegoat him when the real fault mm. obviously lies with the people that failed to lock down quickly enough. And we do still need stimulus. Um, and the fear is that having pursued good collectivist policies at the start of lockdown, which they were right to do, is that they'll now swing too far the other way, get too laissez-faire in their approach. But we just don't yet know how either coronavirus or, of course, this incredibly hard Brexit are going to play out. Um, and it could be, and, and it's highly likely to be, a total economic disaster and start to hurt him and then hopefully by proxy Johnson very, very quickly. But we are facing huge, huge unemployment levels. You know, just today we've had EasyJet pulling out of Southend, Stansted and Newcastle. Um, uh, Marks and Spencer's losing 7,000 jobs. That's off news yesterday of Debenhams uh, and others. So the state are going to have to support people one way or another, whether it's furlough payments or unemployment benefits. It's too soon to say. But you asked, um, you know, about him and the man. And, uh, and, you know, obviously he was, he was a hedge fund manager uh, and things like this. But 
I'm, I'm not sure where his real politics lie on all of this. Um, but in part, the, the big reason why he had these measures ready at his fingertips was nothing to do with his philosophical uh, approach to you know, collectivist economics, far from it. It's because they'd already had to think of them all because of the impending no deal Brexit. You know, their mm. initial response was so good because they already had it on their mind. So I don't think it's part of his political persuasion at all. Um, it was because, you know, again, back to my point about this this pragmatism, um, it was a case of, you know, kind of Blue Peter style thing. Here's one I prepared earlier. I hear you were on the show when Sinek was first appointed uh, Chancellor, memorably. Um, what's your assessment of his performance so far then? Uh, well, I mean, I have one assessment of his performance that I will share with you and another assessment of his performance that I will share on other podcasts where it's just brown people talking. Okay. Uh, because, uh, in the, you know, there we can go into the nitty gritty of what we actually think about the deals. But in this, I have to be like, yeah, but he does. He looks kind and good <laughs> and I like it. And he looks like my cousin <laughs> and is nice. <laughs> uh, but look, you know, he's... He's he's done he's done well. I'm not I'm not uh, you know by any stretch of the imagination wholly aligned um, with him politically. Uh, I guess most obviously on Brexit, but um, but yeah, it's he he speaks in full sentences and seems coherent and reassuring. And at a time when it looks like he's second in command, and the prime minister was hospitalized, and ever since he got back, he looks like a ghost whose unfinished business is fucking your wife. It's like it's. <laughs> It, it's not surprising that Rishi will end up, uh, yeah, Rishi has ended up doing all right. Now, I want you to do a thought experiment for me briefly, I hear. I want you to imagine yeah. that myself, Alex and Naomi are brown people. Now, what would you say to us on that other podcast you just mentioned? Imagine, and the listeners, that we're recording this. Uh, this isn't Zoom, so we can't see each other. It's not very hard for I hear to make this mentally go. Uh, look, I think that, fundamentally this guy is in a honeymoon period and as we get to a stage where the honeymoon period gets uh more and more sort of over the little things are going to creep up and become larger and larger and that he will quite possibly just end up being connect with his hand out in front of the tide so diplomatic on the brown people podcast as well as the white people but 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 for the white people podcast he's so handsome it's, it's so not handsome. just a white people podcast. Oh, come on, it's an offshoot of Romaniacs. Of course, it's a white people podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Naomi, do you think, um, you know, are Labour supporters right to be worried about Sunak as a future Tory leader? Is Keir Starmer right to be worried about him? Uh, if Sunak continues on this uh, economically uh, less laissez-faire approach, then absolutely they should be worried about him. We know from study after study that the centre ground of the UK electorate is slightly more authoritarian than liberal on that axis and slightly more left than right on the other axis. Um, and so at the moment, he's very much playing to that crowd and, and could mop up a huge number of votes. Um, I think the issue at the next election could well be stagnation, a second decade of economic stagnation all under Tory rule uh, that's got to be a massive issue for progressives going into the next election unprecedented in modern times um, but in the end Labour have to sort out Labour first and that means you know winning back those suburban seats that they won in 97 town seats uh, maybe across the red wall or maybe new ones like wh where do the next Canterbury's come from um, where younger voters actually live as opposed to 
lots of the red wall areas where the demographic has just shifted against uh, the progressive parties uh, through an aging population. Uh, you know, it means dragging some modest electoral su- success, kicking and screaming out of the Labour wasteland that is Scotland too. So ultimately, Sunak is not the problem for Labour. Labour remains the problem for Labour. Now, a bit of Brexit in the supposedly Brexit-free podcast. We apologise for this. The transition period ends in December and indications are that food prices will rise significantly if we get the no deal that seems likely. The Grocer magazine says customs bills on food alone are expected to cost £7 billion a year, about a third of the £350 million you were supposed to send to the EU. Remember that? And supermarkets are almost certain to pass those costs on. Meanwhile, the Trussell Trust estimates that one in 10 children in the UK are affected by food insecurity, despite the UK being one of the richest countries in the world and of course coronavirus has hit family bills hard. Naomi to tackle these problems your team at Besser Written are, are calling for an affordable food deal can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah so um, it, people can go to affordablefooddeal.org to find out more sign the petition etc. We've launched this because uh, a few months ago the UK government published the UK Global Tariff Schedule which will come into effect on the 1st of January because it's unlikely that we're going to have a comprehensive free trade deal with Europe and we import a huge amount of our food from Europe. Uh, In fact, the vast majority of our fresh produce. But these global tariffs uh, will impact the very, very basic staple items that many people who are on the cusp of food poverty or are already in food poverty um, uh, count on. So this is things like, uh, you know, tinned beans, tinned tomatoes, packaged pastas, rices, grains, those sorts of things uh, that we import import heavily from Europe that are now going to face uh, import tariffs up to 20%, up to 22%, something like that. Um, Meaning that what's the point of having vat-free food if you're then going to have to slap a 20% plus tariff on it? Um, It could push up uh, the average uh, weekly shop for families, you know, well into the many, many hundreds uh, totted up over the year. Um, And we're really worried about this. And we're worried that people don't know and they don't realise that if the government doesn't do what it promised in its manifesto in the 2019 general election, that was agreed in the political declaration. That is published in their stated negotiating aims to deliver this oven ready, comprehensive free trade agreement with Europe that food and very, very basic food is going to become incredibly expensive for people. So once again, Brexit hurting the poorest first and worst. It's not just imports though, I should add for our friends in the farming community um, and the National Farmers Union have been wonderful on this. It's also about exports and export markets. We were promised frictionless trade. We were promised that this wouldn't happen. It now looks set to happen. And that means our farmers who export uh, are going to find that much, much more difficult, much tougher, and it's going to become more expensive uh, for their products to, to, to get abroad. And that means that for some farmers, it will not be economically viable for them to continue because they simply don't make enough money from the domestic market only. Uh, And so you could see them packing up. We are only 64% self-sufficient in food, which means this week we are 64% of the way through the year, I think this Friday. Uh, And that means that if we were totally reliant on British grown uh, produce and, and, and other foods, that we would be out of food for the rest of the year. Uh, so this is a massive issue. People don't really know enough about it. So that, that's why we're doing it, trying to raise awareness, let people know food is going to get a hell of a lot more expensive if this doesn't government doesn't deliver on what it promised to. There's also been a lot of talk about the need for a, a national food strategy and indeed, uh, you know, re, uh, you know, officials responsible for a national food strategy. Do you, 
what change in policy posture does the government need? short of making the actual deal that you just talked about? Well, there, there, there sort of isn't anything because nothing you can do, you can do quickly. So yes, it would be wonderful if we could polytunnel over huge swathes of the country and start to grow more produce that we currently can't because of climactic conditions. Uh, yes, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a much more sustainable food chain and we weren't so reliant on this sort of just-in-time stock management that, of course, once disrupted, as we saw during COVID, leads very, very quickly to shortages. Um, so, so the, you know, there are all sorts of things that that we can and, and, and should be doing, but they take a long time. And there will always just be for various different reasons usually uh you know climate ones uh, why we simply can't grow certain produce that we actually do need and want and like uh, and that give people choice and give people choice um across a range of of price ranges rather than um you know becoming something that uh, creates a kind of two-tier food system where the rich can carry on importing and 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 you know quaffing their uh you know lovely tomatoes from the south of spain uh while while you know poorer people just have to eat a, a turnip or a parsnip that's managed to grow in british soil and is now a few months old because it hasn't grown since the winter and now we're in august oh the baldrick diet that's quite terrifying alex andreo um you know you would have thought that a government that's just built its success on the red wall which we seem to mention every five minutes on this show that is its entire rationale is based on the notion of leveling up would prioritize something that's going to hit those new conservative voters very hard if it happens and they don't seem to be doing so do you see that you know do you see that becoming an urgent issue for this government the closer it gets or are they just going to roll through it you know i never understood the the terminology leveling up because in gaming terms that means everything's a lot more difficult. <laughs> I don't think they're gamers. So, may, so maybe that's what they meant, right? Yeah. Maybe that's what they meant. Maybe we're <laughs> going to just, everything's going to keep getting more shit until we face uh, sort of Dominic Cummings <laughs> as an invulnerable end-of-level baddie. <laughs> it's it's going to be a big problem. I mean, part of me thinks that COVID has actually been a good education for what's coming because. I think a lot more people have uh, started thinking, how do I make things stretch? How do I cook at home? Um, which which maybe they weren't so much before. And maybe there is a sense that uh, uh, we need to get back on seasonality of produce. Maybe actually it's a good thing to not have uh, you know, strawberries uh, available all year round and to get used to, you know, winter fruit like we do in Greece. The problem with that is that uh, we've become so accustomed to everything being available all the time that when something becomes unavailable, people panic and panicking changes their buying habits and that creates a, a sort of ripple effect of problems. This is rather the kind of hair share Brexit argument, though, isn't it? You know, when you say, well, it, it's unlikely that we're going to get be able to get these things that we've become used to. The response is, well, why do you want them? You should want the turnip that Nomi was just talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not making I'm not, I'm not making that mm. argument. All I'm saying is, you know, looking at the environmental impact that perhaps, you know, moving towards. Sl- is more seasonal pro- product that comes from closer afield is not a terrible effect of what's happening. No, but 
one of the alternatives could be that the government veers away from a great deal with Europe to a US trade deal and then think of your air miles for your hormone beef and your chlorine sure, chicken and sure. your overly processed breads and it, things like that. Once again, world. saved by Hinduism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, that's, and, and that, I think, is part of what's going to happen. We're going to end up, you know, flying a whole load of strawberries and avocados from, you know, Latin America and uh, because there will be a demand for them. So the price will go up, the environmental impact will go up, so you get worst sort of, of the, worst, yeah. the, worst, the worst of both worlds, exactly. Ah, uh, here, saved by Hinduism, plot to us there. Um, there's another plot, <laughs> that, uh, which is that organic goods in the UK would not be allowed into Europe because the EU does not recognise Britain's organic certification scheme under no deal. So, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of global Britain, let's sell our food stuff around, around the world, is rather harmed. It'd be so great if, like, one thing was going well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'd love for you to be like, oh, but here just to close off this uh, section of the podcast now that we're coming to the end, uh, it turns out that we're all getting new curtains. Curtains for Britain, says the bunker. <laughs> <laughs> we've come to the end of the podcast which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics the things that are distracting them from the daily misery alex what's your great distraction this week tv radio music telly anything uh i've been binging on united states of tara which i missed at the time and it's wonderful it's uh it's a, a sort of comedy drama dark thing with Tony Collette uh, as someone with DID who keeps switching be- between person- personalities at the most inopportune moments. It's absolutely brilliant. And I've also been watching Humans, which I also missed at the time. Humans is great. The- yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've been catching up on binge-watching series from your Fantastic. Naomi, how about you? I watched the amazing Murdoch documentary on the BBC iPad. Mm. Uh, it's a three-parter, and it is amongst the best documentary making that we've seen for years. So totally recommend that. And then from that, I had to go back and re-watch seasons one and two of Succession. Um, <laughs> there is something about re-watching a comedy and you just pick up so many gags that you hadn't quite... You, know, you get the surface level ones on the first watch and then you get all the amazing subtle scripting ones uh, underneath it in the second. So yeah, that's that's been my... Um, no, I wouldn't exactly say escapism, but uh, deep joy and uh, fulfillment. Well, thanks very much for that, Naomi. I'm going to have L to the OG stuck in my head for the rest of the day now. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, hear. How about you? Well, previously, I was going to say that my escape is that this week I'm finally going to get around to finishing uh, The Anarchy, uh, William Dalrymple's History of the East India Company, uh, which I'm about wow. halfway through at the moment and is brilliant. Um, but I think instead, my escape route will be learning all the words to L to the OG. <laughs> You've got to say L to the OG. <laughs> he be the OG. <laughs> what about you, Andrew? What have you been? Uh, uh, I've been going mad on um, Lovecraft Country. Bit of a callback there to earlier in the show. Oh. Lovecraft Country, new thing on Sky. And it is uh, essentially, it is uh, a, a fantasy horror 
series set in uh, in Jim Crow America. All the protagonists are African-American actors. And the gist is, the conceit is, what if the books of H.P. Lovecraft were not fiction? And what if you looked at them through the prism of racism in the American South? It is astonishing. It is a, a wild act of imagination, co-produced by Jordan Peele of Get Out fame and J.J. Abrams. Um, great performances, uh, you know, fa- fantastic cast. And Pretty hello, the- you're commission. <laughs> oh, well, we're going to be talking about it in at length on our sister podcast, Big Mouth. We're going to be talking about it at length this, this week, so tune into that if you want to hear more. But it's remarkable. And what it's most like is Watchmen, which took a fantasy idea and, I love and, and okay, I'm looked, sold. At, looked at it through the lens of racism and looked at racism through the lens of the fantasy thing. Really, really good, um, you know, rich stuff and sort of bang on the money for now. And I guarantee you, episode one of Lovecraft Country has the most astonishing title sequence, you'll, uh, opening sequence rather, not titles, most astonishing opening sequence you'll see on telly this okay, year. Okay, okay, okay. And that is the end of this week's bunker. Thank you to our panel, Alex Andreo. Thank you for having me. Naomi Smith. Good to be back on the show. And Ahir Shah. Fuck Boris Johnson. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and we'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Uh, we'll be on Zoom on Thursday, 24th of September, if you'd like to sign up for that. And if you back us, you will get a shout-out on the show. And here are some of those shout-outs now. Many thanks from me to Ryan McDonald, Janine Nicol, and Imogen Hardy. Thanks from me to Tony Nixon, Mike Spooner, and apologies if I fuck this up, Dennis Dreeke. And thank you very, very, very much from me to Jenny Hughes, James, and Wayne Tuckfield. For me, it's thanks to Roberta Squozen and Anna Mirvang. And we'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented and produced by Andrew Harrison with Naomi Smith, Ahir Shah, Alex Andreu, and Caroline Vogel. Assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.